The Heinemann Podcast presents a new six-week series. Of all the tools available to the classroom teacher to mitigate anxiety and relieve depression in students, writing is a powerful one. Over 200 research studies since the late 80s have reported that expressive writing especially can improve people's physical and emotional health. So how does writing do this? And what can I do as a classroom teacher to position my students to take this verbal medicine, as author Barry Lane calls it? Join me, Liz Prather, on the Heinemann Podcast each week starting April 4th as we learn about the healing power of writing. I'm Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're handing things over to Heinemann Fellow Marion Dingle. Marion is a fourth and fifth grade educator and is currently in her second year of the Heinemann Fellowship. Marion's passions lie in diversity of mathematics curriculum and in highlighting the work of mathematicians of color. In this episode, Marion is joined by Dr. Toya Jones Frank, assistant professor in the mathematics education leadership and secondary education programs at George Mason University. Marion and Dr. Frank discuss the professional trajectories of Black teachers of mathematics and the ongoing examination into their recruitment and retention. Here now is Marion. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to talk to yet another researcher in mathematics education. My action research with Heinemann centers around students and their identifying their cultural identities, especially as it pertains to mathematics in the classroom. Today, I am so excited to speak to Dr. Toya Jones-Frank. And Dr. Frank, I will let you introduce yourself. First, I want to say thank you for the invitation. I am uh, excited to do this with you. You are uh, one of my favorite, favorite thinkers on social media. So to be able to have this conversation is a huge honor. Um, I'm Toya Jones-Frank, and I am faculty at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, in the uh, D.C. metropolitan area. And um, this is my seventh year here. And um, my research broadly is about equity, diversity, access. I use those words. Maybe we can have a little conversation about that. But uh, broadly thinking about African-American teachers and learners and uh, the intersection of race with mathematics identity and uh, mathematics achievement and participation. You know, I I will talk a little bit about the work that I do uh, thinking about racialized experiences of Black teachers, but I'm also interested in work with um, African-American learners and access to secondary uh, mathematics experiences in advanced math. I was a high school math teacher and a mathematics department chair for 11 years before I uh, went back to graduate school. So I'm very interested in how theory and practice can work together to uh, improve educational outcomes and affect for students. Interesting. So um, I really appreciate you talking about how we met on Twitter. I have not really been on Twitter long, but I do remember you being one of the first, if not the first, researcher to reach out to me and actually answer my questions. It was really, 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 oh yeah, it was a big deal to me. And if it weren't for you, I don't think I would have ever really taken seriously the 
possibility of researchers and practitioners working together. So I need to thank you for that. So, okay, so there's something else that I I need to thank you for. And I've done this before on Twitter, but I'm going to do this on this podcast as well. So there is a text that came out last year called Rehumanizing Mathematics for Black, Indigenous, and Latinx Students. Rehumanizing Mathematics for Black, Indigenous, and Latinx Students. And in it, you told me that you had a chapter in the book. So I couldn't wait. I ordered the book. I remember when it came out and I got it in the mail and I went to your chapter and read it. And I was astounded. As I was reading, I was nodding. And then I noticed the tears started rolling. And it really was the first time that I had seen myself in an academic piece. We talk about representation a lot, how representation is so important for our students to see themselves so they can normalize their experiences. But I didn't really realize until reading your piece how much I needed that myself. So I just really need to thank you for that. And I'm going to let you, you tell the audience, what is the title of that piece? So, yeah, first, thank you for that. You know, you can just kind of put your head down and do the work and hope that someone reads it and sees it and that you convey what you're trying to convey. So, you know, you said it publicly before, and I thank you for saying it again. It means it means the world to me. The title of that piece is uh, Listening to and Learning with Black Math Teachers. That was not always the title. I want to thank the editors, Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez and Dr. Imani Goffney, for uh, pushing us to really think about what it meant to rehumanize teachers and students in research. Probably started with a more sort of sterile type of title, you know, how academics can be, and they can be really long-winded in their naming. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They kept pressing me about what was really important in the work and what I really wanted people to walk away with. And the more we thought about, because I co-authored it with uh, Dr. Dina Khalil at Howard, a a district-level mathematics specialist, Bianca Skates, and we were really, really fortunate to have a pre-service teacher, Simone Odoms, who also co-authored the piece with us. We were, and you know, we were able to work together and and think through the piece and, and do those sorts of things, but we were really fortunate to have them push us around like what was important. And for me, if nothing else, when people read that piece, I really do want them to consider before we start with the recruitment and retention arguments and diversifying the field and those sorts of pieces, it's really important to listen to and learn with Black teachers of mathematics, right? So I think we can um, learn a lot. I think sometimes in research, um, I don't do a lot of like distancing myself from the participants. I'm not one of those people who's like anti me search, you know, sometimes mm. when you do research on yourself, I mean, I'm an African-American woman. I was a high school math teacher. I still teach mathematics here at George Mason. So some of this work is, you know, part unpacking some of my experiences, but also knowing that my experiences don't exist in a bubble. And so it's really important to me not to give voice because Teachers have voice, and I think social media has been an amazing platform to really center teachers' voices and ideas. But I think it's my responsibility from this seat to amplify the voices of teachers. And so 
that piece and subsequent pieces are really like, if you really want to think about teacher diversity before you put all these plans in place that want to do things to people or do things at people, you have to center the people and listen to them yes. <laughs> and see what's important. And you cannot come at this like a top down, like we are going to provide employment or opportunities for people because you can learn these have to be reflexive relationships. So that's what that piece was really about, putting Black teachers at the center of the work and thinking about both the assets and the wealth around content and community knowledge and pedagogical knowledge that they bring to the field, but also thinking about racialized experiences that often don't surface when people talk teacher diversity, particularly in policy arenas. Yes, that, that it sounds so obvious too, doesn't it? That if you want to study a people or, or study people that you need to center them, but that's just not what happens normally. We tend to tell people what to say, what to think. We know best that whole thing. So this was just so, so refreshing to me. And it makes me wonder, did anyone else, did any other Black teachers have that reaction? Or I don't know, maybe researchers that used to be teachers? So, you know, um, for this to be scholarly work, this work has fed my spirit and kept me alive in ways that I did not anticipate. Mm. And that is because of the emails, the tweets, the people who stopped me after talks, just the kind words. I'll talk a little bit about some teachers I've been interviewing. So to have teachers circle you and pray. Oh, oh. Have teachers speak life into you and thank you for uh, giving them. I, I'm getting choked up. <laughs> oh, I, I, I have goosebumps because I, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So, um, yes, to answer your question succinctly, I have had and, and that for me makes it worthwhile. That makes it, you know, if I were to get a piece back and I get a revised resubmit or a reject, I'm like, let me strengthen the argument. Let me uh, say this in a way that will, you know, reach more people or let me bring some more clarity to my thought because the work is important because it's reaching people. This has been just the amount of connections and not just, you know, the thank yous, but for me, it's also been an opportunity to connect people. So some of the teachers that we interviewed for the rehumanizing piece, I know one of them started, I think I mentioned uh, Stacy. that's her pseudonym in the paper. The first thing she asked me was, um, you know, where are there, there are other black math teachers. Well, where are they? You know, <laughs> she's in the, she was in the Pacific Northwest at the time. And so it gave me an opportunity at the time. There were some online spaces. I was able to say, well, hey, here's some online spaces where you can talk to other Black math teachers or other Black STEM teachers. So, you know, it's been part research, part community building, but honestly, a labor of love and the amount of uh, candor and honesty and vulnerability that, you know, the teachers, you know, they allowed me to enter their personal space and we were able to talk about some really sensitive things. So I am always, you know, incredibly grateful and indebted to those teachers for uh, giving me that opportunity and that access to their lives. We are so, so incredibly indebted to you for, for telling our stories because they really are our stories. I can't stress enough. And I know you know this, but there's nothing like being at a school where you are seen where you can have, you know, maybe I call them elders. I have some elders that I work with. I've been fortunate. I've always had them. And 
during those moments when you're down or, you know, life happens or this work just gets hard, they see you and they seek you out and they just speak a word of life. That's what your piece did for me. It spoke to me and I still go back to it and read it. Which brings me to the next question, which is about your famous trajectories project. We've seen tweets about your trajectories project. There have been interviews. You've been all over the country interviewing people. So I can't help but wonder, is this um, an extension of the article that you previously have written? Is this for a book? Like, what is this really about? Can you speak to that? Absolutely. I'm excited. So um, trajectories, I will just say I got into research about Black mathematics teachers Part of my interest uh, comes from being a doctoral student at uh, the University of Maryland College Park. I came in very interested in um, like recruiting and retaining teachers of color, thinking about diversifying mathematics teaching. And it just so happened that while I was there, uh, there was an NSF project that a team of researchers were leading about highly respected Algebra One teachers. And the teachers were nominated through uh, school leaders, parents, et cetera. And um, it just so happened that all of the teachers who were nominated were Black. Wow. We were in a a predominantly Black school district doing the work. And just the research will tell you, wherever there are concentrations of Black students, that is where you are likely to find concentrations of Black teachers. So, um, yeah, so that gave me an opportunity to really start thinking about about race and racialized experiences, drawing a lot on Dr. Danny Martin's work and what it would mean for teaching in the ways that he so beautifully, you know, laid the path for us for thinking about racialized experiences for uh, African-American learners, right? Right. I was able to do lots of research with that team. I was able to uh, co-author a piece with my advisor, Dr. Lawrence Clark, which made a case for why we shouldn't just look at this contemporarily. We should also look at it in a historical space, which feeds into the trajectories project. And then, you know, when I got here to Mason, even when I gave my job talk, when I was seeking employment, I talked a lot about how I didn't know it was called trajectories at the time, but, you know, this was work that I wanted to pursue. I really wanted to think about what happens at the nexus of teacher diversity conversations and STEM teacher pipeline conversations, because no one really thinks about the overlap. What does it mean to look at teachers who have the highest rate of turnover in a hard to staff subject area, right? So, yeah, so trajectories is uh, built on some of my work as a doctoral student. And then just, you know, in addition to that, questions that weren't quite in within the scope of the research that we were doing there. So it is a it is funded by the National Science Foundation. We are in year three of three. So this is a three-year grant. And um, the full name of the project, see here I go with this long title, right? <laughs> <laughs> Examining the trajectories of math teachers, learning from the past drawing on the present and identifying goals for the future. So I think a lot about place and time and how you have to really, you know, consider those things in the context of race and teaching. And so, you know, the overall goal of the work is to inform recruitment and retention efforts. But I will say that the more we've done the work, it has definitely evolved. I am grateful for every critical friend that I've had along the way that has pushed my thinking. 
I have an amazing advisory board. They're like a dream team and uh, who push the work and make it better. But uh, the questions have shifted. So it's not just it's a, it's what they call an EHR core grant. It was like under workforce development. But instead of just thinking about, so how do we bring in more teachers in the field, right? How do we just bring in more Black teachers into mathematics teaching? The questions for our team have shifted. We're, we're really thinking, so what are the structural challenges and barriers that impact teachers' decisions, right? So how can we inform the field if we listen to and learn with Black teachers? Again, taking that listening to and learning with approach to this work. So hopefully through, uh, you know, we've done large scale survey work. So we uh, surveyed about 1,200 African-American teachers from all across the country. And we are now doing focus groups. And so in the in the focus groups, we are sharing the results from the quantitative data. But, uh, you know, for me, the part of this project that is really, really special and unique are our oral histories. So we make the argument that uh, you cannot really understand recruiting and retaining Black teachers without looking at the issue historically, because Brown, Brown v. Board, had a huge impact on Black teachers, specifically, you know, where they could teach and how many of them taught. A lot of Black teachers were pushed out of teaching, you know, so we can look at this as a contemporary issue and say, you know, there, you know, there's lots of articles. Sometimes I'll start talks by just really putting up like news headlines, like where are the black teachers? You know, those kinds of things. There was a point in time where that really wouldn't have been a question that would have made the headlines. Right. So we we try to look at this historically. So we've been doing oral histories with retired black mathematics teachers I will say the crown jewel of our project is uh, Dr. Gwendolyn Means. She's about 90 years old now. She uh, started teaching in 1951. And um, just listening to their stories, uh, and in particular her stories, because, you know, she taught, oh gosh, over 40 years. And then she became like director of like, I don't think they were calling it STEM education at the time, but director of, I believe, either math education, STEM education, something in that area. And so just listening to her perspective on the field, on the content, on how race impacted both her experience as a pre-service teacher, because she went to, you know, the all black teachers college, minors teachers college, talking about what teacher testing looked like to have her and other teachers talk about like what it meant to integrate their schools and to teach a subject area like mathematics and the um, experiences that they had around race have been eye opening. For us, because we think about, you know, time and those sorts of things, it's been interesting to juxtapose their relationships with, I mean, their experiences, rather. It's been interesting to juxtapose their their experiences with our contemporary practicing teachers and find that in a lot of instances, the same things that were barriers to the teachers' practices, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, in some cases, early 80s, still persist. That's been a lot of the shifting of our uh, questions, not just around how do we bring more people in, but like, what are these issues of intractability? So we've been making this argument around the intractability of racism, which is firmly rooted in critical race theory. And so thinking about, you know, the intractability of racism, but I think it's also important to talk about the agency of Black teachers. So we've also, so in response to the intractability of racism, what has been the arc of resistance 
for Black teachers. Resistance inside the classroom in terms of doing what they thought was best, given their commitments to, you know, supporting their students and improving the lives of their kids through mathematics teaching, thinking about their resistance outside of the classroom. Some of our teachers were very active in the union, or even if they weren't formally active in the union, they were just pillars in their communities. A lot of our teachers taught in the communities where they worked, so they were able to have a lot of community cultural wealth and use that as a bridge to mathematical thinking and learning for their students. But for us, it has been taking on the intractability, both through qualitative research, through the oral histories, but also through quantitative research. One of our most interesting findings, uh, it's interesting, but in some ways I heard, uh, <laughs> I heard myself giving the talk and I was like, ah, you know, back. And sure enough, it showed up on social media, but I started calling it like the, we told y'all variable. This idea Whoa, that microaggressions. I love that. I love that. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's okay. This idea that, so we have this instrument that we gave, uh, like I said, we, we surveyed about 1,200 Black teachers of mathematics, K-12, public, private, public charters, you name it. We, we tried to get a wide sampling of Black teachers of mathematics. And um, within the survey, we developed a set of questions based on some of the interviews that we use in the Rehumanizing book, and then some interviews that we did after that. And just from you know, reading in the field and talking to our oral history participants, we developed a scale. We call it the term scale, the teacher's experiences of racialized mm. microaggressions. And so that was part of the uh, larger survey instrument. And we found that when we put the, the, the microaggression variables into our model, when we're trying to predict teachers' decisions to leave or stay, microaggressions explain a lot of what we call the variance, right, in the model. So Teachers who reported having higher experiences with racialized microaggressions were, were more likely to have thoughts about leaving the field. And so for us, when you read, you know, there's amazing policy work, like for us, Richard Ingersoll's, like he does amazing work. And so some of us, you know, we want to be in conversation where he has work on teachers of color and he'll say, you know, the data set, the data for teachers of color doesn't necessarily look like what it looks like for white teachers. Like it's not salary. Is not teaching in places where there are uh, high concentrations of students of color. And so just continuing to think about like, why are teachers of color not staying? And so for us, we're like, well, it might be taking a critical lens to looking at teacher recruitment and retention. It could be these microaggressive experiences that happen within their buildings and their districts. Boom. So yeah, Trajectories is really thinking about this idea of race and racialized experiences and mathematics teaching and what we can learn from Black teachers to change the structures before we focus so much on trying to bring more teachers in. Because we can bring them in and we can recruit, 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 right? But if we cannot retain, then we get this, you know, this cycle of turnover. What I love is the arc of resistance that you refer to. That is something that I think we all come to a point where we have to embrace it. There's so much within the system, so much within maybe even the way we were raised that calls us to suppress that, to suppress the resistance. Just just go with it. Just endure it. Just do what you can. Go around the system. There comes a point where you just you can't do it anymore. You have to start actively resisting. My mother was an educator. So this this is very, very close to heart for me. I was an only child. My mother was an only child. So a lot of the adults that I was around, all of her friends were other educators as well. 
So I grew up listening and hearing about the plight of Black teachers. In fact, my mother always, always told me that, yes, I would go to college, but no, I would not become an educator because educators were not, in her eyes, they weren't esteemed. They weren't paid what they were worth. And she wanted more for me. And it's ironic now that I'm an educator and I didn't really become an educator until after she passed away, which I don't think is a coincidence, but um, I think we've made peace with it now. But I remember as I have progressed throughout this career of going on 21 years now, you get to the point where I started resisting once I realized that, as you said, the barriers that were here 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago are still here. And you start realizing that when every year more and more of your friends leave your building or leave the profession. And this has happened, you know, historically. And it's all because of, as you say, the level of resistance that you're willing to absorb and the level that, you know, I guess there just comes to a point where you just can't take it anymore. Yeah. And, and, you know, resistance looks different for different teachers. Right. So, you know, there are some teachers, um, even within our, you know, interviews, there are some teachers who are on the front line, who are, you know, very vocal, who are leading the charge, who are pushing back. And then you have some teachers who maybe on the surface look like they're going with the flow. But doing very, you know, I think it was uh, Rochelle Gutierrez call it being like creatively insubordinate. (laughs) And we are just finding uh, these beautiful cases of teachers who have found ways to put their students first and to push for change within their systems. And they're doing it in so many different ways and unique ways and all of those ways. Right, right. It reminds me also of the, the Horace Tate book. I don't know if you've read it. I'm reading it now, but it's the same thing. So many things were done in secret and they weren't written down on purpose. So we're still trying to piece together just who did what, when, and how, so we can learn from that. It's just fascinating. And even with some of the teachers we interviewed for the, the Rehumanizing book, teachers are still doing it. Black teachers are still going in behind the scenes and making sure that kids get scheduled in particular ways because they know that the kids, they've seen something in their children, right? And they want to make sure that their kids have access to particular, you know, educational opportunities, or it's in the ways that they perhaps pull parents to the side and talk to parents about how to navigate the system or what they should be doing to, you know, do things that are in the best interest of their students. There are just so, so many ways that teachers, even today, You know, Black teachers just come from a long legacy. You know, that's why, yeah, it is. It's the arc of resistance. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've, I mean, it's in the DNA, I think. We've just grown up knowing that we're going to have to do that. It's not going to be an easy road. So we're going to have to do everything that we can to kind of set things right. So one more question for you. This is something that I also ask Catherine Yeh, especially for you. Doing all these interviews, he said over 1,200 teachers um, and hearing these stories, some of the stories I'm sure have to involve a lot of pain that you're absorbing. Of course, there's also joy, but I don't want to minimize the pain. I've seen on social media that you do have a partner and you do have a family, you have a child. And I'm wondering 
what it is that you do. What are your intentional self-care practices? How do you balance all of this so you can be the professor you need to be and the partner you need to be and the mother and the professor and the teacher, all of those things? Balance. (laughs) I'm sorry I'm laughing at this. I will be honest. I don't know that I have always done a good job. I'll just tell you these last few years have been, I, I sometimes describe it as like I've been running, you know, running a gauntlet. I did. I finished. I defended my dissertation. I started here at Mason the next week. Then we found out we were expecting. I have raised a baby and started a new career. (laughs) You know, I I started a new career. I did them both at the same time. And uh, like I recently just, uh, I'm, I'm going up for tenure right now. And so it's the first time I've had a chance to sort of step back and say, okay, like maybe you can just stop for a second and consider yourself. So I will say that right now I am, um, I'm in process. This summer I started asking myself really hard questions like you love your work and you love your family. What would it look like if you turn some of that love like right. on yourself and your well-being? And, I, and, you know, I was trying to figure out how to do it. You know, my little girl's five. And, you know, like you said, you know, you're trying to be a wife, trying to be a mom, trying to do all of those things. And like, how do you do it? And this summer I was complaining. I'm like, I'm tired and I've got to do better. I was with my friends from college and one of them just looked across the table at me and they said, you know what, what if you just leaned into the discomfort and you just did it? What if that means you just wake up before everyone else and you enjoy the quiet and you put yourself first and like you set your intentions for your day. So I will say that I am very new to like really taking care of myself. But since maybe August, I have, I've become an early riser. So I get up at 5.15 now and I go exercise. I have become a runner. And like transforming my physical health, it it has also transformed my spirit. And so, you know, I am, I am grateful that, uh, I've had the opportunity to sort of step back and do that. And it helps me go to bed earlier, too, because when you wake up at 5.15, you go all day. (laughs) You're ready to go to bed, so I'm probably also getting a little more sleep. Yeah, but I will say, I'm in process. I'm working on it. I'm getting better at it. And, uh, yeah, I, I certainly feel better. I knew something was going to have to change because I'm like, this is not sustainable. I was running myself into the ground. But now, even if so, if I'm going, if I'm speaking at a conference, if I'm going to collect data, you will find me at about six o'clock in the morning in the hotel gym. Wow. Putting myself first so that I can be there for everybody else. And it has been life changing. And about how long you think you've been doing this? Oh gosh, maybe five or six months. That's why I said I'm in process. I'm at the beginning, uh-huh. but it has become a habit now. So now like wow. I don't even need an alarm clock. My body wakes me up and I and I do it. And when I don't go, my body craves it at this point. And uh it has it has helped a lot. It has helped a lot. Not just in in, you know, the the physical, but also in the mental, in the spiritual. I feel clear. I feel like my head is more clear. Definitely feel like I've like I am tired, but I am not like right. then there's a difference. Same way. Right. And I was telling somebody, I, I am I am a pretty spiritual person. I also come from a line of ministers. <laughs> Everybody in my family is in some sort of a ministerial position. I say that I, education and and thinking about you know the 
betterment of African-American teachers and learners is my mission. Nice. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I will say that like part of this has, it has been like a, a spiritual awakening for me. It's been, uh, it has, it has helped center me and it helps me endure. And I was like, you know, I get up in the mornings and I meditate, but that treadmill wow. is my altar wow. in the mornings. It really is. Okay. Five or six months. I'm trying to talk myself into this because I just... Oh, come on. I'll give you a wake up call. Okay. I'll give you a wake okay. up call. Because I start and then I just, I, don't, I guess I don't get to my 21 day point where it becomes a habit and then I just fall off the wagon. No, that's what happened. It became a habit. It was the first time I'd ever just made it a habit. And I'm telling you, if my friend had said, you know, okay, you're uncomfortable, big deal. So what are you going even are you going to surrender to the discomfort? Like what are you going to do? Are you just going to keep sitting around <laughs> telling us all how okay. tired you are? Okay. I can do this. It this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me and to do this podcast. I have learned so much more than I thought I already knew about your work, so thank you for that. And good luck to you. Good luck with your tenure pursuit. Good luck with all of these things. I can't wait to see how the project turns out. Me too. <laughs> it is. We're excited. So we are. Um, we have most of the videos back. We're still doing some interviews. So we're doing focus groups in Atlanta, and we're going. We're going to also do a DC focus group. So if anyone is interested, they can find us in a few places. If you look up trajectories of Black math teachers on Facebook, you'll find our page. We just created a page. We're at, at Trajectories Pro, like Trajectories Project, at Trajectories Pro on Twitter. And our website, we have a big, beautiful website. The videos are being edited now. That's going to be blackmathteachers.org. And it should be opening early January. And so it'll be a digital archive where people can watch the oral histories. They can, we're going to post, we have some infographics around some of the data that'll be coming out in papers that we have under review that should be coming out in the spring. And so they'll just be the behind the scenes on the Facebook page. We've been posting pictures wow. and sort of giving snapshots. And occasionally we will tweet some of those things on Twitter. But yeah, uh, blackmathteachers.org will be the big fancy site. And uh, right now we just have a temporary site where we're recruiting. Oh, I can't wait. I can see me now. I'm going to be crying all over again. Wow. That is so, so, so important to collect that for the people that come after us. That's so, so, so important. Thank you. And I want to thank you for this opportunity to uh, share this work with the public. And uh, I want to thank you for thinking enough of me to interview me for this podcast. I mean, of course, of course. Your work is important. Our thanks to Marion and Dr. Frank for their time today. You can find them both on Twitter at Dingle Teach and at Toya J. Frank. Learn more at blog.heineman.com. As always, thanks for listening.